Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He liked it. He liked it. He really liked it. He said, would you be interested in being the assistant choreographer of my new Broadway show? And I said, well, uh, gee, you know, I'm not really interested in being an assistant choreographer. I'm lying, I'm lying, I'm lying. I really said interested. <laughs> interested? Would I be interested? Wow! <laughs> well, it's the beginning. It's not where you start, it's where you finish. It's not how you go, it's how you land. A hundred to one shot, you call him a klutz. Can outrun the favorite, all he needs is the guts. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode, You Gotta Take Care of Business, The Genius of Tommy Toon, Part 2. This is the second part of my recent conversation with Kevin Winkler, author of the fascinating new book, Everything is Choreography, The Musical Theater of Tommy Toon. If you missed Part 1, you may want to go back and listen to that before embarking on this one. We ended last week's episode with Kevin making this intriguing statement. The story of my one and only is one of the great theatrical backstage stories of the end of the 20th century. I mean, it really was quite a saga. Now you will get to hear that story, as well as the saga of how Tommy Toon transformed a 1950s flop musical into one of the most acclaimed musicals of what I call the modern era of Broadway. That show, of course, was Grand Hotel. As we begin, it's important to remember that Tommy Toon started out as a performer and first came to fame when he received a Tony Award for Best Supporting Actor in a Musical for his role in Seesaw as a young, aspiring gay choreographer with dreams of making it big on Broadway. Wait, come back, we've got to do a bigger finish! <laughs> This was clearly a case of art not only reflecting life, but also predicting it. Because not only was Toon terrific in the role, Seesaw's director Michael Bennett had also asked Toon to choreograph his own show-stopping song and dance production number, It's Not Where You Start. It's where you finish and you're gonna end. 
Toombs' twin careers as Broadway star and star choreographer were set in motion simultaneously. Here we go. It all came out of Toombs' desire to go back and perform. Nine, Cloud Nine, Hollywood, Ukraine, Whorehouse. He could have done anything he wanted at that point, but he really wanted to get back on stage. It had been 10 years since he had appeared in a Broadway show, since Seesaw. Someone who was involved in raising money and producing the show got the idea to pair Tune with Peter Sellers, that S-E-L-L-A-R-S, not the actor, the director. I remember Peter Sellers was the boy genius. He was sort of like the Orson Welles of the not-for-profit world. And the opera world as well. And the opera world, yeah. He was very hot at that moment and on the cover of the New York Times magazine and things like that. He was, as you said, the boy wonder of avant-garde theater and opera. And it did things like he would direct King Lear, like putting a black exploitation movie on stage. He staged Shakespeare in a swimming pool and kind of crazy things. And he was greatly acclaimed for all these things. They were all done in the not-for-profit or the university realm, which is a very different realm than a commercial theater, a Broadway show, again, where the clock is ticking and the money is ticking. And they were all works that were established that were not being written. They were Mozart operas or Shakespeare or things that existed. Exactly. Yes, indeed. He had never developed a show from the ground up. And this was a new show, even though it was based on the 1927 Gershwin musical Funny Face that had starred Fred and Adele Astaire. Anyway, he had his own team, a music team and a book writer. And designers as well. Yes, indeed. All people he had worked with and very successfully worked with. The script that I saw, which is in the Peter Stone papers up at the Performing Arts Library, which I'm pretty sure, from what I can confirm with people who were involved, was the script that they had in place when they went out of town to Boston for their out-of-town tryout. It's really long. It's really talky. Some interesting things, some really interesting, provocative statements about geopolitics and labor unions and relationships between Europe and the United States and the banking industry and stuff like that. But it just seemed to overwhelm the Gershwin songs. Toon later referred to it as a graveyard. It was just long and slow and talky. It wasn't going to deliver the musical comedy that people were clearly expecting. One of the best interviews I did for the book was with the show's production stage manager, Peter von Meyerhauser. He said, you know, it seemed weird, but he said it also seemed like the kind of pairing that could work. Peter Sellers and Tommy Toon, they're both good at what they do. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll be something really terrific. And Tommy Toon was doing the choreography as well as starring in the show. He was co-choreographing with Tommy Walsh, who he worked with frequently. Yes, indeed. And Peter said to me, there was nothing to get from one scene to another. There was no connecting music. There were no gazintas, I guess you could say. And he said to Peter, how are we going to get from this scene to the other? And he said, the one thing that strikes terror in the heart of a stage manager, he said, we'll figure it out in Boston. He said, from that time on, I knew this was trouble. So they got to Boston and Tommy told me, he said, we couldn't even tech it. We couldn't even get through the show on stage. They fired Peter Sellers immediately and they fired his musical team. And they came to Tommy and said, you have to direct the show or we're going to close it. And he said, wait a minute, I'm on stage for the first time in 10 years. I'm teaching Twiggy to tap dance. I'm doing the choreography. This is too many hats to wear. And they said, well, if you don't do it, we're going to close. So he agreed. The first thing he did was call Mike Nichols. And Mike Nichols came in and he came up to Boston and they literally cut, I don't know, an hour or something out of the show. And Tommy said, it still wasn't good, but at least we could get through it. And he said, it sort of made sense, sort of. 
And correct me if I'm wrong, but they did have these wonderful dance numbers already as part of the show to sort of hang on to and to craft everything else around. It's wonderful. As one of the dancers said, we knew the numbers were good. The numbers worked. They already had that wonderful number with Tommy and Twiggy dancing in the sliver of water along the stage. They had the hi-hat number with Toon and the men. So they had all these terrific numbers and they did more later. That was what kept them going, the fact that the numbers were really working. And they brought in a new musical team, Wally Harper, Jack Lee came in and they started creating a new show, basically. And Peter Stone as well. And Peter Stone came in and, you know, Peter Stone is another one of the unsung heroes of the musical. He always says that the key to a successful show, it's not the score, it's the book. He said, if the book doesn't work, if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't matter how good the score is. He said, that's why people listen to cast recordings of flop shows and say, how could this be a flop? The music is so good. But if you go back and read the script, you see that it doesn't hang together. The infrastructure isn't there. So he set about creating an infrastructure. And in the end, it's a very lighter than air confection. It's a boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back show, but done with great style and fabulous dancing. But anyway, they went back into rehearsal after Boston because they couldn't get it together in the limited time they had in Boston. They went back into rehearsal back in New York, did a long preview process, and then finally opened at the very tail end of the season. And turned out to be a hit. I think I say this in the book. So many times when a show goes through all this sturm and drong out of town, it comes into New York looking like something the cat dragged in, just defeated and worn. This was not like that at all. It was buoyant and light. You'd have no idea that it had gone through all of this drama before it opened. Yeah, it was fantastic. The look of the show was so arresting. Again, so non-realistic. The scenic design was done by Adrian Lobel, who had worked with Peter Sellers, and it was done in a Russian constructivist style with big slabs of scenery and panels sliding up and and going down and so forth. And what Peter told me was, he said it was very bland, and he said the set looked like a paper bag, and when you put lights on the stage, they reflected back on the actors and everybody looked yellow. So Tony Walton came up to Boston and they brightened it up. He created a color palette for it that was deep indigo and bright yellows and primary colors to just kind of make it pop. It has an almost avant-garde feel to it because it's done almost entirely on a bare stage. There are virtually no props, very few set pieces, all the better to Mm -hmm. clear the stage for dancing. And just panels moving up and down, sliding in and so forth. It's directed in a more sophisticated manner than I think people remember it for. Absolutely. So it was sort of Adrian LaBelle did the sculpture and then Tony Walton did the color on top of cool. it, which ended up being one of the most spectacular shows I've ever seen yeah. in terms of the visuals of it. Yeah. 
So the happy ending is that Tommy Toon is able to showcase himself as a performer again for the first time in 10 years and very successfully. And the show runs a long time. Right. The show was a big hit. He won two Tony Awards for its performance as a lead actor in a musical. And he and Tommy Walsh won the choreography award. A very happy ending to a turbulent beginning. And the show was a big touring title. It toured for a long time after that. And so successful that he even was replaced in the show. It's a vehicle for him, but it's such a hit that someone else takes over the role when he leaves. That's right. He and Twiggy left and Sandy Duncan and Don Correa, her husband, came in and replaced them. Then he came back and... Did it with Sandy for a while. And then they went on tour with it. And then she left and Lucy Arnaz came in and did it and they went to Japan. It was a very, very successful touring property. Don't go away. There's more Broadway Nation right after this short break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50. 50 at factormeals.com slash bn50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So 
so now we're back to another workshop process with Grand Hotel. That process is crucial to the creation of the show. That's another fascinating story. It was really proof of Tune's ability to kind of take apart and put back together again a musical property. Again, I think if anybody else had done this show, I think it would have been a much more conventional stage musical. And in fact, it had been that. It had been a conventional. Years earlier, right? Back in the late 50s, yeah, by Wright and Forrest. It tried out on the West Coast. It even had a theater booked. It was booked into the 46th Street Theater in New York. But Paul Muni was the star of the show. He played Kringlein, the bookkeeper, and he had a lot of issues and he didn't want to come into New York with the show. So it basically died. And that production, it was heavy with scenery and realism. And the Grand Hotel is on the stage in all of its heaviness turntables and grand staircases and bedrooms and yes it was a big show and of course then tommy tunes production becomes the polar opposite of that right so tune saw something in this that would make a compelling musical in Wright and Forrest's score and the book by luther davis so he booked a workshop of the show and he basically took it apart he drew on vicky baum's but, novel before you go there tell us about this dream that he has that ends up bringing him to this space that really informs the show. Thank you for reminding me. He had a dream. He dreamed that he was staging a show in a ballroom. Nothing in it, but just people moving and dancing around. There were a few chairs here and there. Chandeliers, all elegant and beautiful. Another world, another era, this big, vast ballroom. So he joined this production as director-choreographer, Grand Hotel, and he did not want to direct it in a rehearsal hall. He hated rehearsal halls. He said they were antiseptic. They didn't breathe. He always preferred to rehearse in an actual theater. Or in the case of Nine and Hollywood Ukraine, he rehearsed those at the New Amsterdam roof, uh, the roof of the New Amsterdam theater. Anyway, the production team went out scouting for locations. And they called him. And they said, we've got a place, but you're not going to like it. And he said, well, what is it? Well, it's the ballroom of this old dilapidated diplomat hotel on West 43rd Street. And he said, hang on, I'll be right there. He got there, they walked in, and it's horrible. It's a mess, paint's peeling. He said, this was it. What I saw in my dream, this was the ballroom. I love it. This is where we're going to do the workshop. So he went back to Vicki Baum's novel, the Grand Hotel, for dialogue and so forth. And they really sliced and diced the script and the score to create what I call a mosaic uh, of music and movement for the show. They did the workshop. They basically did about an hour of the show. It was received with great enthusiasm. They went into rehearsal. He wanted it, in some ways, the show to resemble like a fever dream, resemble the dream in his head where the action would be a continuous flow. Nothing would stop. You'd go from movement, music, dialogue, back and forth. It would be one big two-hour gazinta. So a kind of cinematic staging where there were quick cuts and dissolves, different things going on in different parts of the hotel. The ballroom setting allowed him to do that. It was a bare space where he could create anything, any space, just using lights and movement and so forth. There were some old rickety ballroom chairs, banquet chairs at the diplomat, and they began using those. Tony Walton came in. I can't remember who decided on this, but they decided to come up with, I think, uh, four dozen gold gilt chairs. And Toon would then use those to create a hallway, to create the entrance, to create a conference room or something. And they could all be moved by the cast just like that. He said, I don't want to wait for beds and doorways and staircases. I don't want that. He said, I want it to move quickly. 
And so Tony Walton basically recreates the ballroom from The Diplomat as the set for the show, including four columns that are right in the middle of all the action, basically. There were four mirrored pillars in the middle of The Diplomat Hotel. Originally, Toon thought that they would put the orchestra at the back of the stage. And for a variety of reasons, that didn't work. But Walton said, let's put them above the stage in a kind of latticework uh, framework. And part of the support for that bandstand were these four pillars. So they really need to carry over the four pillars to the stage. But of course, you got four pillars stuck in the middle of the stage. But as somebody said to me, Tommy said, the pillars will be our friends. They kind of grounded the action. He worked all kinds of movement around them. They were no impediment whatsoever. He built the show around the pillars. He built the show around the pillars. One of the things he didn't want to do was stop for applause. He wanted it to be one continuous move. They got to Boston. It certainly was not the disaster that my one and only was, not at all. And it got mixed reviews in Boston. But it became very clear, I think, to everyone that by having it be one continuous two hours of movement, it didn't give the audience time to appreciate the numbers and to really express their appreciation. And it was somewhat confusing. Things needed to be underscored that maybe weren't. Things were glossed over and so forth. So once again, Peter Stone came up to Boston and began working with him to kind of clarify plot points and make it clearer. They began to build in applause buttons for the numbers. And this isn't a tale being told out of school because Toon has told it many times. Wright and Forrest were quite elderly at the time, well into their 70s. And he would say, we need a new song for so-and-so. We need a new song for this spot. And they were very slow to respond. They said to him, Johnny Mercer always said a couple of the day. And Toon said, Johnny Mercer wasn't out of town with a $5 million flop. I need the songs now. So he reached out to Maury Esten, who he had worked with on Nine, and Maury Esten came up to Boston, and he began writing additional songs. He didn't replace the score, but he augmented it. And so the show began to finally come into focus in Boston. There are a couple things I would take away from this. One is, especially after the My One and Only experience, Toon is a very genial, gracious person. He's a lovely person. I think when you see him interviewed, he has a kind of golly gee ingenuousness. Yeah. But he's, he's tough. He knows what needs to get done. On my one and only, he said, you can be a genius and have all these great ideas, but you got to take care of business. And he knew how to take care of business. And if Wright and Forrest couldn't get those numbers for him, he would get someone in who could get them for him. Perhaps so many people were influenced by Jerry Robbins. He was trying to be the anti-Jerry Robbins in terms of treating everyone well and being genial and nice and respectful and loving, I guess, to a certain extent. But that hid that under the surface, he was not in any way unwilling to do what needed to be done and to let people go and make the changes that needed to be done in order to protect the show and protect all the jobs for everybody. He was no pushover, believe me. You cannot helm a multi-million dollar musical and not be tough. You have to have a spine. When I interviewed people, story after story of his graciousness, how great it was to work with him, how great it was to audition for him, even if he didn't get the job. But he knew how to take care of business and get things done. And he wasn't afraid to make the tough calls. Exactly. Yeah. So the show became, to me, kind of the apotheosis of the director-choreographer shows. His staging became inseparable from the music, lyrics, and book. It's all one. And of equal importance, if not more importance, in terms of the final effect of the show. A couple of years ago, they revived Grand 
Hotel at City Center Encores. Did you see that? No, I wish I had. It was great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it looked very different from Toon's production. The set looked completely different. There was a big, giant staircase in the middle. The costumes were different. The cast, of course, was very different. But it was still Toon's show. You can't extricate his work from it. It's part of the infrastructure of the show. It's like Chorus Line or Dreamgirls. Hal Prince's production of Evita is like this. It's part of the infrastructure, his staging, and a large part of why it's a first-rate show. I don't think the material is first-rate, right. but the show is first-rate. The staging rate. elevates it to first-rate. Absolutely. One of the things it achieves is taking the musical sequence, one of the hallmarks of the modern musical is creating these extended musical sequences where you connect large sections of action and plot and dialogue. And here it's extended for the entire show. It's one big, long musical sequence from the top of the show to the end of the show, which is incredibly hard to do. Yeah. And he keeps balls in the air and never lets one drop for... It's not quite two hours, just shy of two hours. And he builds in showstoppers. We'll take a glass together. That was one of the most thrilling moments I've ever spent in a theater. We'll take a glass together in celebration of our meeting. In celebration of our being face to face. (laughs) Friendly, civilized. Members of the race, I'll drink to you. No, I to you. You'll drink to me. Then you to me. I'm sure we too. Oh, I know we too. But find no finer company. Thank you, Baron. We'll take a glass together. And we will lift it to the good life. And as we're lifting it, we will most sincerely say, Cruise it! Your health, sir. Salute. And score. Astrovia. Of all the sante. For one big moment in this cold and careless day, we'll take a glass together. And the ballroom number. Oh, the Bolero number. Oh, the Bolero number is absolutely thrilling. I want to go to Hollywood. There are show-stopping moments in the show, but they add to and create a kind of momentum that pushes the show to a really thrilling conclusion. So again, the show becomes quite a substantial hit, but it's also when Toon starts to be criticized. We start to hear, is he choosing the best material? Is he purposely choosing shows that aren't so good so he can look like the star? I remember that being in the wind of that period. Frank Rich did a column. I can't remember exactly what he said, but words to that effect. And, you know, Toon said, show me the good material. Okay, give me the good material and I'll do it. He said, I do what's offered to me, what comes my way. Some of that is the kind of criticism that comes of anyone who's really successful. Right. Is Um, there validity in any of that? Another part of it was that he often chose to work with people who were maybe not of the highest level of stars that could have been in the shows. I don't think that's true of Nine, for instance. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's true of My One and Only. As I say in the book, I think beyond Michael Jeter, the principals were journeyman performers. I don't think everyone was as exactingly cast as 
they could have been. It's also an ensemble cast, so it's not the kind of thing that would attract star performers anyway. Right. Toon called it a clothesline cast. He said the club was a clothesline cast. It's an ensemble. And one of the interesting things, I can't remember who told me this, Grand Hotel, the curtain call at the very end of the show was staged so that nobody got a larger amount of applause. Michael Jeter was clearly the audience favorite in that show, a Springline. But he staged it so that people came out in twos and it was almost a group curtain call because he said no one will get more applause than Michael and Michael wasn't really the prominent role. So I think he was aware of that. I don't know. I'd have to sit and think about that a little more. This brings us to Will Rogers' Follies. And back to back, these two shows have a tremendous impact. Toon wins two Tonys for each of them, one year after the next, which no one has ever done. He's the only person to do that, to win those two awards back to back. And at that moment, he was the 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 king. king of Broadway. And the King of Broadway will be the title of next week's episode of Broadway Nation, when once again my guest will be Kevin Winkler, author of Everything is Choreography, the Musical Theater of Tommy Toon. I do hope you'll join us as we discuss not only the Will Rogers Follies, but also the best little whorehouse goes public, Grease, Busker's Alley, and the incredible theatrical legacy of Tommy Toon. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. If you love this podcast and want to delve even deeper into the world of Broadway musicals, I invite you to become a member of the Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club. For as little as $7 a month, members will receive exclusive access to never-before-heard, unedited versions of every Season 2 interview and many from Season 1 as well. I often record at least twice as much conversation as ends up in the public episodes, and this includes additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host, Albert Evans. You will also have the opportunity to ask us any questions about Broadway musicals that you would like to hear answered and to propose topics and subject matter that you would like me to cover, all of which I will incorporate into a special series of Ask Me Anything About Broadway episodes. Last, but certainly not least, you will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgement of your vital support for this podcast. To join, just click the link included in the show notes for this episode on our website at www.broadway-nation.com. That's broadway-nation.com. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.